Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, digital agency owners and podcast listeners. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask you a quick question. Are you currently stressed out, cash crunched, or fed up with your business? If you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem, or maybe that it's the area you live in, or maybe this market has become too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around, and I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now that it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who comes to you saying they need a website or Facebook ads or maybe a mobile app developed, but they don't even realize the deeper challenge or opportunity that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a YouGurus strategy call where we'll dig into those underlying issues and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your strategy call. Go to yougurus.com slash apply to start your application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com slash apply to get started. All right, let's introduce today's guest. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the Digital Agency Show. We have a fantastic program and guest for you guys today, Blair Ends, which if you're in this space and haven't heard of Blair, uh, you've probably been living under a rock, but Blair is the sand in the free pitching machine. Through his sales training program for creative professionals, Win Without Pitching, he is on a mission to change the way creative services are bought and sold the world over. He's also the author of uh, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. Um, That book is coming out later this year. And Blair lives with his family in the remote mountain village of Caslow, British Columbia, Canada. And he can be found on the web at winwithoutpitching.com. So welcome to the show, uh, Blair. Uh, Thank you, Brent. My pleasure to be here. So how uh, how did you get into this business of helping creatives uh, sell. Oh, what story do you want? (laughs) (laughs) The the most gruesome and engaging story. (laughs) I I think the, uh, the, the original genesis of the business was I live in this little remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere. And I tripped over it years ago, my wife and I did, and I was determined to pick up the family and move here and raise my kids here. And I couldn't find a way to earn a living. So I thought, well, I think I'll start a consulting practice and um, a business development consulting practice because I was doing business development for a design firm at that time. And I had done it for um, advertising agencies previous to that. So, and, you know, if you work in business development, particularly in advertising, but also in design, um, you don't have to be in it for very long to see just how horrible it's and all of the bad habits, all of the conventions, all of the wasted effort, all of the heartbreak. Um, and at some point near the end of my agency career, when I was running a, a satellite office of a, 
a design. It was really a full service design marketing firm with all these other specialized divisions. It was a crazy business, but a wonderful experience. When I was running that, uh, the remote office for that business, my boss called me up. The owner of the agency called me up one day and said, hey, I signed you up for a sales training program. I hope you don't mind. And I said, no, I'd love to. I've never had any sort of sales training. And I'd been doing business development, if not full-time, then at least kind of part-time in addition to being an account person for years. And I went through the training program and it was the, really the first time that anybody had taught me to sell. And I just realized that any kind of, any logic that comes from the greater sales world it, um, seemed to be missing when it came to selling creative services. So I was already thinking about my next move, moving to Caslow, this beautiful little village. And I think at that time I thought, okay, I'm going to become a sales consultant to create a firm. So I think, I think, well, at least that's the story I'm choosing today. I could choose other stories. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very much a uh, kind of a personal lifestyle decision of if you're going to be out in this remote area, what kind of work based on your skills and your talents up to that point could you you leverage to make that happen yeah and that's not the way these stories should go right like the 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 genius founder story <laughs> is i saw a need in the market and you know i did it's not i couldn't point to the need in the market other than i saw that everybody was doing it wrong i didn't see that um there would be a demand for sales training and you know it in the in the agency world, and I use that term to cover advertising, design, digital marketing, public relations, um, and all kinds of other stuff now, UX, app dev. Um, in the agency world, we've never called sales sales. We've called it new business or new business development or business development. And that was the term I used when I was in it. And when I launched uh, Win Without Pitching, originally as a consulting practice, it's now a training company, and we can talk about that. But when I launched it as a consulting practice, I made the deliberate decision to lean into the S word and use the word sales consultant because nobody else was using it. Therefore, I was immediately essentially the premier sales consultant <laughs> in the creative space because nobody wanted to go near that word. And I will always love the idea of kind of leaning into the dark places, the places mm. where nobody else wants to go. And I think it's, I think it's been a wise move. And so we still refer to it as sales training. But if you, if you were to join our win without pitching training program now, which again, we call it sales training, we start with positioning and then we do lead generation. Typically you don't have to go on this, but this is the suggested path, positioning, lead generation, then a couple of terms of sales training, then IP development, and then closing with specialized IP. So sales training is still at the heart, but we also touch on these other areas that you might consider to be, um, you might put under the banner of business development. So we could call ourselves a new business or a business development training organization, but we still stick with the S word. Why do you think creatives, uh, and, and I, I probably have some ideas of what this answer might be, but why do you think creatives even still to this day really cringe at the word sales? I think a lot of us do even beyond the creative professions, but in creatives in particular, I think cre most creative people are marketers. Not all, not all though. And that's a mistake I made early on. I woke up one day and realized, oh my God, I assumed all these clients of mine are marketers, but they're not. Um, but most, most creative people are marketers or they're in the marketing business. So 
they see marketing as a more noble means to the same end as sales, which is to drive a transaction. And um, I, uh, I, there's this thing I identified early in my consulting practice. I called it the marketer's dilemma. The marketer's dilemma is that he thinks he can sell, but he can't. Or he thinks because he's good at marketing and sales is kind of a less noble, less sophisticated version of marketing that he can sell to. He's, he's good at selling too, and he isn't. Um, I think there's a, we, we think marketing is more noble and uh, because we've all, we've all bought things, right? And we've all been in situations where we've had to deal with, um, you might think of them as sleazy salespeople, or we're, we've been in sales transactions on the buying side and just been left with a bad taste in our mouth. We didn't like the way the salesperson operated. We didn't like the way we were treated. Um, so I think that's a big reason why we have a bad taste in our mouth around sales. So we don't, you know, there's in David Ogilvy's book, Ogilvy on Advertising, he explains, he, he has a transcript of a conversation overheard on a plane. Somebody says, what do you do? And the guy says, I'm in advertising. Oh, what do you do in advertising? Account management. Oh, you're in sales. Oh, no, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not in sales. Well, what are you in then? Well, I... So he kind of explains what he does and the, and the guy sitting next to him is saying, well, that sounds like sales to me. Oh, no, trust me. It's, not, it's so much better than sales. <laughs> we have a different name for it. So people will treat us like salespeople. But yeah. have yeah, you- it, interestingly, I'll just, we, we send a lot of thought leadership and we have for, for years. So we've got a fairly sizable list of people who read the stuff that we publish. And um, we found out in the last year, we did an analysis on the open rates and click-throughs. And if we put the S word in the subject line, our open rates plummet. Huh. It's really interesting. I talk about sales all the time, but I can't put it in the subject line. Yeah. It won't stop people from reading if I, if I start getting into... Do you think that's the filters or is it the human, like the, the end reader uh, doesn't want to open it or is it, no, you know, I, I think it's the end reader. Yeah. I don't think Have you seen, um, Joe Polish's video is sales evil? No, I have listened to some of his stuff, but I haven't seen the video. His, his, uh, one of his podcasts is called I Love Marketing. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> what's his position? Is sales evil, according to Joe? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'll link it out in the show notes for folks. But I think he has, he has a phenomenal, you know, presentation on, um, you know, the, the value of salespeople in the world and how everything uh, is sold, um, you know, not just your transactions, but, you know, everything from, uh, I think he, he says at one point, you know, the, the, the great pyramids, you know, somebody had to sell that idea, um, you know, even if you're yeah. a creative or you're, you know, not in a sales position. And let's say, for instance, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling off of his, his platform, but um, you're, you're having to sell a, a design comp to a client. You know, you have to persuade them that your your method, your approach, even if they don't see it right away, is the right way based on what you know about your craft, right? It's like everybody probably does a little bit of sales and salespeople are really important. And, you know, he goes into like, you know, there are ways to use sales tactics for evil, right? And, and then yeah. sales can become evil, right? Or there's ways to use tactics for sales to be good but it's it's a good uh uh uh, uh it's five minutes long but yeah yeah I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes for our, our listeners to watch that later because it's one of my favorite 
talks on sales and getting people out of this mindset. I was literally just on a call with a customer and, you know, she was working on um, an outbound routine to try to get some business in her niche. And, you know, there was so much uh, uh, guilt and shame around, you know, I don't want to bother these people. I don't want to contact them because, you know, they're, or I don't want to contact them twice because they're going to think that I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a salesperson. And it's like 99% of creatives out there on their worst day will probably be never interpreted as like a pushy salesperson, right? But there's like this, there's a a huge, you know, you're absolutely right. There's a huge um, uh, kind of uh, stereotype about that word. Yeah. And, you know, just think about what, you know, Joe Polish's video. I'm kind of of two minds of that. First, on one hand, I um, I absolutely agree with him that we're all selling at some point. Like you, you can't, you don't get through your day a day where you're interacting with other human beings without selling them. Or we could use a different word than selling. Um, framing. I recently wrote a, a the pricing book that's coming out shortly, there's a chapter in it on the use of cognitive biases. And I say in the chapter that I once wrote an article on using cognitive, leveraging cognitive biases in the sale. And these are shortcuts that the brain uses and taking advantage of shortcuts to just basically frame choices to clients in your proposals um, in a way that helps kind of steer them or nudge them towards one option or another. And um, in the book, I was, I'm, I was saying that when I published an article on this, that I titled the article, The Dark Arts of Leveraging Cognitive Biases. And I got so much pushback, people claiming that I was evil uh, uh, and trying to manipulate people by using these cognitive biases. And my argument is, well, if you're evil <laughs> or if you're selling tobacco to children, you know, pick something that you consider to evil, then you're going to use these techniques for well, ultimately for evil. Um, but, but also if you, if you think you can put forward a proposal of any kind to a client and not have some impact on how he makes his decision and especially a proposal with options, which is something that I, I advocate there should always be options in your proposal. So if you think you can put forward three options and not have some, and just say to the client, okay, choose an option based on its merits alone without any influence from me. That's impossible. It's physically impossible. So the same idea applies to sales. If you're interacting with people, the idea that you can't have an effect on them, that you're not selling them or otherwise influencing in some way is preposterous. So on the one hand, I, I agree with that completely. On the other hand, I think there's a danger of taking that idea too far through the notion that it's everybody's job to sell. Now, that line, it's everybody's job to sell, is something that's repeated ad nauseum throughout the sales world and throughout the business world. And I myself have repeated it many dozens of times. And then one day I just stopped and asked the question, um, well, what if it wasn't everybody's job to sell? How would that? How would things change? And as soon as you ask that question and you you think of a typical creative firm where you've got somebody who's just sees themselves as um, I, I was put on this earth to create. I'm here to design. I'm not comfortable interacting with people. I'm not. You know, I'll interact with people so that I can do my craft. 
but that's it. And now you're extrapolating too far and saying, it's my job to sell. And now I have to stand up in front of the client and sell. You're pushing me outside of my comfort zone. I might leave this firm and go do something else where I don't have to sell. So as soon as you recognize that it's it's not everybody's job to sell, and I, I fundamentally believe that, it, it is not, well, we're all selling. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that it's everybody's job to sell. And as soon as you release some of your better creative people from this mistaken obligation that they need to be selling and that they should be okay being in sales situations, then you free them up to be uh, to do what they were put on this earth to do and to focus on being better at that. You remove all this stress and angst around the fact that you, you're just blindly repeating this notion that it's everybody's job to sell. I'm telling you, it isn't. So <laughs> two minds. Earlier, you said that uh, a lot of people are doing it wrong, doing sales wrong. And in, in this space, and I mean, I, I think probably that's how you could, you could say in the world, right? A lot of people are doing sales wrong, but specifically in the digital agency owner uh, market, you've worked with a lot of agency owners. You've worked with a lot of probably shops of varying different sizes. Um, when you say that maybe they're doing it wrong or what you observed early on in your uh, consulting practice that got you motivated to really take on this challenge, uh, what were some of the things that maybe people are or were doing the most wrong? Well, the big thing is they give their power away. So I, I could take this idea of winning without pitching. And pitching, if you, if you have to free pitch, pitch free ideas, it's, that's not really the problem. That's the symptom of a larger problem. And I don't think free pitching in and of itself is, a, is evil. I just think it's a symptom of larger business problems. So we help you address those fundamental business problems. So the why firms are in this constantly in this situation where they're being um, they're being asked to kind of step up to the table to line up against their peers to take your 20 minutes and do your dog and pony show I mean that's a bit of a metaphor it's respond to this RFP give us all this information we're not going to give you too much interaction with the decision makers or maybe even not give you access to decision makers at all take a whole bunch of wild guesses based on the limited information that we've given you. We've self-diagnosed self and self-prescribed. So like, give us your the details of your prescription for our problem for which we've self-diagnosed. Lob in, in over the fence along with uh, the proposals from four or five of your competitors and then we'll get back to you. Like that's, that's the environment I grew up in um, in the agency world, that's how we sold for the most part. Just so happy to get a live opportunity, do whatever we have to do with a big smile, fake smile, often plastered on our faces, stay up late to the small hours of the morning, trying to make the pitch deck fatter and fatter with ridiculous uh, information, taking wild guesses about the client situation and try to convey it as some sort of research-based strategy in the document and then hoping we get selected. It's just, I, is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> so almost the, so what, you know, what I heard from you there is um, giving away the power to the client to drive the process and they are maybe, maybe it's almost even the client thinking that they're doing something in their best interest. Like they're doing their due diligence, they're creating their RFP and then they're, you know, going through this kind of, uh, you know, 
fraternity process of, you know, let's line up all the recruits and make them do things and, and figure out who's, who's still standing at the end of it. Um, so we, we give our power away to that process and we just kind of abide by what the client wants. And that's kind of what you're saying is giving away our power. Yeah. And you, so this is a generalization that, that I make all the time. And it's that you, when you're selling to a prospective client, you can occupy, um, you can occupy the vendor position in a vendor customer relationship, or you can occupy the practitioner position in a practitioner patient or practitioner client relationship. Now, really that's, those are two ends of a spectrum but it's really helpful to think of it that way. You're either the vendor or you're the expert practitioner. If you're the vendor, the client is telling you in the sale and then in the engagement once you're hired, here's how it's going to work. Here's what we're doing next. They're dictating everything to you, even price and profit margin often. If you're the practitioner, you're the one who's gently but firmly leading the client. Here's what we're going to do next. And the client's following your lead and you have more freedom to... um, shape the engagement in a manner that's more likely to lead to a positive outcome, which means positive outcome for your client and for you. So we, we, you know, when we give up our power, what we're effectively doing is relegating ourselves to the vendor position or just accepting that we are, um, we can't, we can't sell this engagement and therefore operate in the engagement from the expert practitioner position we're going to sell from the vendor position. And then once we're hired, we're going to be seen as the vendor. And I think that's such an important mindset because uh, there's probably very few, using that doctor analogy, there's probably, I mean, I'm sure they're out there, but there's probably very uh, few doctors, especially as you get into like specialized fields that would ever let you treat them as a vendor. I don't know if that's through their training or laws or, you know, their uh, uh, cert- certificates and all that kind of stuff that they have certain things that they have to abide by. But, you know, if I went to a heart surgeon and I was like, hey, I need this valve replaced, you know, he'd be like, well, okay, let's, I'm not just going to put you on the table and open you up. Uh, but our field, at least in the digital agency space, I mean, there really aren't any established standards. I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday. Like there's literally like no real, you know, certification bodies. I mean, there are some people that are attempting it, but the amount of companies that are actually certified by any one body is like probably sub 1%. Um, You know, maybe there are some platforms like Google and stuff like that that have certifications, but there's really no like standards. I mean, even in, in the development space, there's always a fight for like creating standards within this space. So I almost feel like the clients, um, I mean, at some levels, they they do have a lot of power because there really is no standard. There is no, no nothing that says, "Hey, you can't go to a vendor and just you know demand what you want." Um, you know, there's so so. How does how does somebody overcome that? I mean, let's say you want to work with. Uh, I'm just going to throw a name out there. One of our our grads recently scored a project with um, uh, Harvard. And, uh, you know, they had a very rigorous process that they took people through in order to become one of their, you know, to do work with Harvard, right? And there was uh, very little room for stepping outside of Harvard's process. Um, so is yeah, it that... Well, how, how come, why is it the client bringing that process to the table though? Why isn't the, why isn't it the agency? <laughs> and and I'm, I'm right there with you, right? Like I, but I just, I'm... You know, in an industry where that's the standard, and um, and maybe Harvard's not willing to 
to work within yeah, you know, so, one so company's the norm, process. The norm is there's a void in, in process when, um, and process is just Canadian for process, but there's a void in process <laughs> when buyer and seller come together. And so that void is almost always filled by the client, by the, yeah. by the buyer. And we just let them. But the more, once you shape an expert practice and you start to define, you build deep expertise and you start to define the way you work, then you become more bold in saying to the client in the sale, all right, here, this is how this is going to work. This is the path we're going to take to decide whether or not we're going to work together. Or at the very least, you'll start to affect the path. The problem with Harvard, this 400-year-old institution, or however old they are, <laughs> this grand elevated institution is, they're the prize to be won in pretty much any relationship and they know it. But... Um, what if Harvard was thinking of hiring some of the like McKinsey versus Bain, you know, is like at a higher, the world's most expensive consulting companies, would Harvard be the prize in the relationship or would McKinsey be the prize? It might be, you know, with Harvard, maybe Harvard's always going to be the prize, but the, but the, uh, the power dynamic might level out a little bit more. So if we put kind of the grand, the few grand super prestigious brands aside and we take the typical client, we're always offer, operating from this default assumption that they are the prize to be won in the relationship. And sometimes it's just an attitude shift. You, you need to see yourself as the prize to be won in the relationship. And um, that comes from expertise. Expertise comes from solving the same types of problems over and over again. When you start solving the same types of problems over and over again, you get methodical, you develop these methodologies or standards yourself. They don't have to be industry standards. I'm not a fan of licensure. I don't think certification is the solution for uh, the design world, or the digital agency world. Um, I don't think that's a solution at all. I think it's a big mistake. Uh, it's not, we don't need to agree industry-wide on what standards are. We need to agree on what the standards in our firm are and then we need to share those standards with the client in the sale. And from that, they should infer, okay, you've done this before. You do it all the time. You know exactly what you're doing. It sounds like you've got a bulletproof way of doing this. I'm going to let you lead. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I wrote that in my notes. I mean, incre increase power through, uh, you know, expertise, specialization, and, and even hearing about, uh, you know, some of your process earlier in the interview, we talked about things that you guys do um, at your, your training company around uh, IP. And, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of things with um, agency owners where we'll like leverage something like the lean canvas to, to help them kind of map out a strategy. And they get to this box that says unfair advantage, and they'll put in that box, they'll say like, oh, 12 years experience in the yeah. uh, engineering field, right? And then you're like, well, that's not really an unfair advantage unless you turn that into something that is, you know, intellectual property or something that a client could see or use or is proven to get certain results that none of your competitors have and you can protect that intellectual property that all of a sudden becomes something and usually you can't get that without specialization or like you said, doing that same thing over and over and over again. So you start to realize, okay, what works, what doesn't work? How do we refine this into a more streamlined process? Yeah, let me lay out the steps for you. So the steps are you decide what business you're in by defining 
your discipline, what is it that you do, and your market, for whom do you do it? And then the next step is you arrive at an overarching perspective, which is your, which is your, uh, your perspective is your overarching viewpoint on how this discipline for market should be done. Once you have that, then you start to create content around that, your perspective on how discipline for market should be done, right? And so that's when you're creating content, you think of that as intellectual capital, kind of the, the um, codified knowledge of, of, uh, of how to do X for Y, discipline for market, framed by your perspective. Once you have a body of codified knowledge or you start to build a body of codified knowledge in the, again, I'm calling it intellectual capital, then you translate that into intellectual property. You take that your thinking on how the, your, your documented thinking on how this should be done and you create tools around it, intellectual property that, that formalize how you bring your perspective to bear to help clients uh, uh, in your space solve, uh, solve the problems that you help them solve, discipline for market. So those are the steps. Choose the focus, which is the function of discipline and market, add a perspective, start creating content around that perspective, start to translate the content or the, the knowledge, that's the ideas that are in that content about how to do X for Y framed by your perspective into a novel way of working. And then, so when you're in a sale, fast forward a little bit, you're in a sale and the client says, um, I'd like, and so imagine this, imagine you write, uh, an amazing piece of thought leadership and your, your most highly coveted client reads it and goes, oh my God, I've never thought about this problem this way before. Or conversely, he thinks, oh my God, this person thinks about these things the same way I do. So that's, those, are, those are the two reactions you're looking for when you publish your thought leadership. You want the client to think, I've never thought about it this way before, or you think about things exactly the same way I do. And by implication, not very other many people do. This client calls you into his office and says, I want to hire you. I'm going to give you carte blanche to come in and do. I'm not going to tell you how this is going to work. You come in, you tell us what we need, and you do it. This happens all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> just go with me in this scenario. And he says, uh, I just have one question. And the question is, how is this going to work? And in response to that question, you need, this is a metaphor, but you need to basically roll out a map on, your, on the client's desk and say, all right, here's how this is going to work. We're going to start here diagnosing your problem. We're going to come up with a solution. We're going to make a bunch of recommendations. Then we're going to start implementing, et cetera, et cetera. But with, so that's the, that's the map that every, that's the, the, the steps in the map that everybody takes, diagnose, prescribe, apply, reapply, everybody follows those steps. But in your specific map, he needs to see your point of view in it. So when you're talking about how you're going to do these things, it's all framed by your point of view. Because if he doesn't see, he brought you to the table and hired you, not because you do X for Y, lots of people do X for Y, but because of the way you think about doing X for Y, your point of view or what we call your perspective. So when you roll out the map, if you haven't translated that perspective into thinking and then codified into tools that we call intellectual property, and you can't show how you use those tools to bring that perspective to bear, in that moment, you're just gonna 
roll out the average, the map that everybody has that says first we diagnose, then we prescribe, then we apply, then we reapply as necessary. So he needs to see that perspective in the map. He needs to see, like, example, we're the win without pitching firm. If my map, I rolled out a map of how to win a, win with a, win more pitches, my client will would think, well, that that article that I read that really resonated with me, that was just bait to get me to this moment. You don't actually believe that because you don't actually work that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you need intellectual property. Very few firms actually develop intellectual property. So it's kind of down the, well, very few firms have properly articulated their focus or added a perspective or made sure their content is framed by that perspective. But once you do all those things, then it's fairly easy to translate into intellectual property now in the sale. Now your thought leadership works because people read for the subject matter, X for Y, discipline for market, but they hire you because of your point of view. They hire you because of your beliefs or Simon Sinek would say, because of the why, right? He, like he, he's got this great line. Don't look to sell to people who, don't look for people who are, um, who want to buy what you have to sell. Look to sell to people who believe what you believe. And that's why so much, so much thought leadership fails because it's just going over the facts, X for Y. It's not framed by this overarching belief. And then once you have an overarching belief, then work to build intellectual property that's around, that's, that, that includes that belief. That's great. You do that, you, do that, you will be differentiated from everybody else. I think our listeners definitely just got a, a roadmap to uh, specialization, a roadmap to intellectual property, a roadmap for focusing on uh, a specific uh, discipline and market. And so I think you've been uh, very generous with that, Blair. Yeah, I should have charged. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll have somebody uh, at the, uh, the the podcast counter taking uh, donations or something. <laughs> um Happy to do it. Yeah, this has been great, man. Uh, are you ready for We've got a quick lightning round. Uh, are you ready sure. for this? All right. So uh, I'm going to start this off with what is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, never break more than one law at a time. <laughs> so if you have a body in the trunk, stop and fix the burned out taillight. Yeah. That advice was given to me by a lawyer who ended up going to jail. <laughs> so. So, so maybe uh, 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 good advice, maybe not good advice to, to live by or. Uh... Yeah, no, you know what? That's universal advice. You can apply that in your business too. Like if, you, if you're breaking a rule or violating some sort of doing something you shouldn't, you can probably get away with it. But if you're doing two, you're going to get busted. That's great. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Oh. My personal habits. Well, is my marriage a personal habit? Probably I married well. If I'm asked, <laughs> you know, what's the secret to success? Marry well. Marry somebody who loves you unconditionally and who isn't a project and who just supports you even when the times are tough. Yeah, I think I think that's it, it. Hasn't come up yet on our podcast, and uh, I personally, I think that's a very important thing. So I, I, I share I that with you. I will say habit-wise, I'm only 60 days into a daily habit of it, but I dabbled with it for a couple of years prior. Meditating daily, oh man, I don't know that there's anything as good as meditating daily. Wow. I, uh, 
that's that's uh, 60 days in. That's a pretty good, uh, you know, you hear a lot of people that will, will talk about it, but uh, very few people can stick with that, um, that self-care. So I like it. Uh, can you share an internet resource or a tool that you use regularly? You know, something like Evernote, Trello that you think our listeners would find valuable? Uh, internet resource that I used... I've got a bunch of technology, like, okay, uh, I use the Muse headband for meditating. I have all kinds of technology for the freaky stuff. I use a Nirvana Vegas nerve stimulator headphones. It's a horrible design, but the product is interesting uh, to stimulate my vagus nerve for health reasons, uh, primarily digestive, but it also works for depression and anxiety. I use an earthing mat for uh, promoting the flow of free electrons through my body. So those are three kind of health pieces of te- health technology that I use that make me better at business. Probably sorry to drag you into this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm gonna I'm just thinking about going and doing the show notes, and I'm gonna get lost in all three of those products. Like, what is this? What does this do? Oh, let me throw a fourth in, which is probably my fa- favorite. I listen to binaural beats all the time and you can google it you can google hemisync or binaural beats or i'll tell you what go to go to a podcast there's a digital agency firm called newfangled they're out of uh, raleigh durham north carolina and the coo chris butler has this fantastic podcast it's called the liminal it has nothing to do with agency marketing it's about all the freaky stuff of consciousness and kind of weird science and he has his second episode, some, I think it's called What is a Dream? He talks about binaural beats. And he put me onto binaural beats. I listen to them every day. So it's just tones in different ears. And you can have listen to some to get you into a meditative state. Some will put you asleep. Some will wake you up. Um, I have tones, beats for concentrating, for inspiration, for, all, for catnapping, for all kinds of things. It's a, the technology is... Um, really fascinating if you get into the history but if you want to change your mood or your brain state you just listen to these background tones and i have a great app where i can actually play tones in the background as i'm listening to a podcast so huh. there's the fourth one binaural beats yeah i'm excited for uh, for doing some research on this thank you for that blair uh what uh what book could you recommend and uh you can't you can't give your own but uh, what book could you recommend yeah, yeah. and why we'll, we'll link out to your your books uh in our in our uh, show notes uh, I'll give two because I think your audience is probably quite familiar with the first one. The first one is, um, I think is, I've been saying recently, I think it's the best business book I've ever read. And I read a lot. And that is Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Mm. Uh, subtitle is Notes on Startups or Building the Future. Yeah, it's that's a great just, book. Uh, prof- um, yeah, great, great book. Great book. I'm still, I only read it within the last six months. I'm still digesting it. I've read it twice. I've done a podcast or a whole webcast on it. Um, but I think Peter Thiel is one of the very few original thinkers in business today. Yeah, I love, I, I actually, I remember where, uh, so I listened to that on audiobook and it just, it stood out to me because literally I was in my backyard after a snowstorm cutting a giant branch up into four inch pieces of wood to put into our, our mulch. Uh, <laughs> and that's when Peter Thiel got me through that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to mention a second book, which is the life-changing magic of tidying up, which mm. is not a business book, but it's that really uh, had a profound impact on my life. And I remember doing the first drift, you know, the book, like a lot of people do, she's got this Marie Kondo 
uh, method of organizing stuff. So you begin with basically your your clothes. And I remember looking at the first drawer in my dresser after it was organized, and I thought, this drawer is the metaphor for the rest of my life. I want the rest of my life to be as organized as this drawer is. Nice. So, highly recommend that book as well. And um, how can our audience find out more about you? And is there anything that you have that they can check out? Yeah, winwithoutpitching.com. I'm also Blair Ends on Twitter. I keep thinking I'm going to leave Twitter, but I haven't. I've been on it for years. Um, and um, yeah, worth checking out. There's My first book is The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. It came out seven years ago. Continues to Sales continue to rise, so I'm really happy with that book. My next book is called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. That'll be out just after Thanksgiving, U.S. Thanksgiving, and it's available only on our website, winwithoutpitching.com. And then you can check out the um, uh, various forms of the Win Without Pitching training program on that URL as well. Very cool. Well, we'll link all that to that stuff uh, in our show notes. Uh, congrats on the new book coming out. Um, we will include just what that general release date is in our show notes as well. And uh, Blair, thanks again for sharing all your great insight with our audience. My pleasure, Brent. It was a lot of fun. All right, guys, that is it for this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Tune in next week for another great program. Until then, I'm Brent Weaver. Thanks again for tuning in to the Digital Agency Show. Before we close out, I wanted to check in on your answer to my question from the beginning of the episode. Are you stressed out, cash crunched, fed up with your business? Now, if you feel this way, you might think that you have a lead generation problem. Maybe that it's the area you live in or that this market has gotten too competitive. Maybe you think that your business can't be turned around. And I want you to think again. In my many years of experience, I can tell you now it's something much deeper that you're likely not even aware of yet. It's like a client who says they need a website, Facebook ads, or a mobile app when they don't even realize it's a deeper challenge that's blocking them from success. Now, if you'd like to find out what your deeper challenge is, then I want to invite you to apply for a strategy call where we're going to dig into those underlying issues in your business and get you moving forward like never before. The aha moments that you're going to have will shift the way you think forever, and you'll finally get the answers as to why your business hasn't taken off. The number one most important decision to rapidly grow your business starts by booking your YouGurus strategy call today. Go to yougurus.com apply to start the application process for this free call. Once again, go to yougurus.com apply to get started. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for another episode of the Digital Agency Show. <laughs>